0: I thought that I would enjoy preaching from a computer, but I learned very quickly I like pen and paper uh, when it comes to preaching. It doesn't turn off, it doesn't go wrong. Matthew chapter 5 and verse uh, 13, and uh, one of these parts we're very familiar with, but we don't talk a lot about the other. And so I want to start right here. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. For you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost his savor... Wherewith shall it be salted, and is then forth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under men. And then again, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do men light a candle and then put it under a bushel, but they put it on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Can I tell you that both of those mean the exact same thing? Sometimes we focus more on the light and not the salt, but today we're going to talk about you are the salt of the earth, and I want to show you exactly what that means and how important it is that God has chosen us for a purpose. Would you bow your heads and would you ask the word of the Lord to speak to you? Father, God, we have worshipped you and we have come into your presence. Now I'm praying right now that we could read the word of God We could hear the word of God preached and that it would be far more than just an intellectual exercise, but God let it take root in my heart and let me be ready to receive what you have to say in the mighty name of Jesus and we will give him glory and honor. Hallelujah. Before you're seated, why don't you shake the hand of someone right around you and welcome them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Before we, before we delve into the, the, the nature of salt, would you let me take you on a journey in, in the Bible? And if you have your Bibles, I may not read every verse, but if you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Mark chapter 9? I want to show you some things because what I have found in life is that the Word of God covers everything that you and I will ever go through. And the personalities and the thoughts and the emotions that you and I uh, have are found within the pages of the Bible. And sometimes we we get the Bible and we read it just to read it and we're not really letting it kind of grow on us. And so I want to take you on a journey in Mark chapter 9 because at the end of that chapter you have another reference to salt. But I think we would do it a disservice to just jump right to the end of the chapter and miss everything that happened at the beginning. So, you, you have this place where the Lord is beginning to tell His disciples uh, and, and try to, to get them prepared that, you know what, I'm not going to be with you this all the time. There uh, There is a time where where, where there's going to have to be a death that occurs, and the disciples, they don't get it. But... Uh, beginning of the Mark, uh, book of Mark Jesus says unto them I'm going to tell you that there's some of you that are standing here that will not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with his power. Now that doesn't mean that the rapture had was going to take place before they died. It doesn't mean that, that they were going to not die until Jesus comes back a second time because right here you have uh, Peter, James and John that get a glimpse of the heavenlies. You have John the revelator and all of the things that he was able to see. But after six days, the Bible says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They go up to uh, the, the mountaintop, and while it's there, the Lord is transfigured before them. Now, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this story. I just want you to grasp the symbolicness of what happened. In front of their very eyes, Jesus changes. He begins to glow. He, his, his raiment shines white as snow. Uh, it, it's just amazing. And then all of a sudden, Moses and uh, Elijah are there. And, and, and it's this incredible moment. And Peter, in his impetuous nature, he's ready to build three tabernacles or three tents. And let's just stay up here on the mountaintop all the time. And we'll just worship. And they don't even know what to do. Once again, That confirmation of Jesus' ministry is heard when the heavens boom out. The same phrase that was there when he was baptized of John the Baptist. This is my beloved son. And then, it's gone. Peter, James, and John can't hardly imagine everything that they have seen. And Jesus, as he is prone to do, says don't tell anybody what just happened. So they go down. They, they, they walk down, they're trying to figure it all out. But look at verse 14. Now there's some time frame that, that happened. I don't know that it was the moment that they walked off that mountain that verse 14 happened. But it's very close and I, I want you to take, pay close attention. It says, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning them. And people were were amazed and they ran to Jesus and Jesus says, what's going on? Something's happening. Why is all of this taking place? They begin to say, well, here I have my son. He's got a, 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 the Bible says a dumb spirit. Now, I know a lot of people that have a dumb spirit, but it's probably a little different from what this means. This doesn't mean dumb the way I think of the word dumb, but this means that he could not speak. He had... Some issues going on. And uh, the Bible says that it was uh, a spirit. It would take him. It would tear at him. The young man would foam at the mouth and gnash with his teeth and pine away. And and the man says, Jesus, I asked your disciples to help me. I asked them to cast this, this spirit out and they could not. Jesus answers and says, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you, how long shall I suffer you, bring him to me. They bring that young man to Jesus and the spirit begins to move and and I don't mean a good spirit, I'm talking about the bad spirit, it's tearing at him, he falls to the ground, he's wallowing around, he's foaming at the mouth and Jesus asked the man, said how long has this uh, been uh, there on him and he said it's been there since he's been a child. There's times that he'll fall into the fire, throw himself into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. And if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and believe. Jesus said, well, if you can believe, then all things are possible. One of the greatest prayers that I've read in the Bible is found right here where the man says, Lord, I believe, but help mine unbelief. Because you and I have been in those situations where you know God has the ability to do it, but when you're struggling with it, it's kind of hard to think, can he help me? And and so it's there, and 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 the the, the Jesus looks and he rebukes that foul spirit, now dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, enter no more. The spirit cries and tears him sore and comes out of him, and the young man falls as if he was dead. In fact, people thought he was dead, and Jesus simply lifted it up by the hand and he arose and They kind of walked their way, and the disciples are sitting there, and they say to Jesus, they say, now, now we're confused. We have seen miracles by our own hand. We've had the power to do these things. Why couldn't we do this one? Why couldn't we heal? And Jesus says, he says, well, because this kind can come forth by nothing else but by prayer and fasting. All of that is just to set the stage for this next diatribe that happens. I I personally believe, I I mean, I guess there's room that maybe this happened far enough after the Mount of Transfiguration that Peter, James, and John were part of that. But my own personal assumption, and, and I know that's a dangerous thing to have, but my own personal assumption, Brother Miller, is that this was taking place while Jesus and Peter and James and John were on the mountaintop. And so they come down, so you have three disciples that have been up just seeing incredible things you have the other, what would that be nine disciples down here trying to cast out a demon and it's not working and after all of that they're coming to Capernaum this is verse 33 and they're in the house and Jesus says hey guys what were y'all talking about on the journey and nobody wants to answer Nobody's paying attention. They're just kind of all, well, well, we, we're just talking about that. and It's kind of like parents when that you know your kid said something and so you ask them what did you say and they don't want to tell you because they know they're in trouble and they're trying to figure out how in the world you knew. And she said, no, I, I heard you saying something. What, 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 y'all were kind of arguing a little bit. What were you arguing about? And finally, I don't know who it was, somebody sheepishly had to say they had been disputing among themselves who... Was the greatest Now if this had happened right after God had sent them out Two by two or by the 70 And they come back and they're saying Man we have seen blinded eyes open We prayed for people and deaf ears got unstopped And all of this Then maybe I guess it would make sense But you just failed miserably In casting out a demon And now you want to argue who's greater With me? Because I'm pretty confident I know Peter Even though the Lord told Peter Don't tell anybody what you saw on the mountain There was a Peter, there was a James and John James and John they had a problem with this Because their their mother in fact one time got a hold of Jesus And said I want you to pay close attention to my kids And I want you to kind of make sure they're on the right hand So there was a lot of this that went on But I can just imagine Peter in that conversation Somebody saying you know what I think I'm the greatest disciple And Peter goes no you're not you should have seen what I saw up there on the mountain. I mean, Jesus began to glow, and, and I got to talk to Moses, and I got to talk to Elijah. It was incredible, and, and, and really, I mean, guys, to be honest, if y'all would be anything, y'all would have been in my shoes. Jesus would have brought you up there, but Jesus didn't do it because y'all don't really deserve it. I am the greatest. Now see, here's the key. You go, well, why is this so important? It's important to understand the, the way human nature works in order to understand the way that the Lord responded to them. Because in today's world, this arrogance still is there. I'm greater. I'm the best. The Lord loves me more than he loves you. It it, it starts when they're kids. I, I I hear it, my kids, all the time. You know, they don't think I'm listening. Mommy loves me more than she loves you. And it's true because my mother does love my brother more than she loves me. So I understand and and I'm aware of how that all works. But it's just built into us. And Jesus sits down and watch what he says. Jesus says, if any man desire to be first, that same will be the last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and he set him in the midst, and when he had taken the child in his arms, he said, "Whosoever shall receive one of these children in my name receiveth me, and whoever shall receive me receive, or, or, and, and sh- whoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me." And these disciples don't get it. They just got rebuked by the God of creation. And immediately after hearing that, John said, Well, you know what, the Lord, the Lord, I saw somebody casting out devils in your name, but he's not really one of us chosen 12 disciples. And so, and, and I told him he ought not do that because he doesn't follow you like we follow you. And, and, and so I told him he had no right to do that. And, and Jesus said, Are you insane? I mean, that, that's Buford's version, but it's in there. Are you insane? Do you not hear what I'm saying? I'm telling you that he that receiveth him not, or, or, or rather forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can speak lightly of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. What's Whosoever shall you give a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. But whosoever shall offend, even one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that you would tie a millstone, a big old rock around your neck and jump into the water and try to swim. If your hand offend thee, cut it off. It would be better for thee to enter into life maim than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. If your foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee that you would enter into the kingdom with only one foot than to have two feet and go to hell. If your eye offends thee, pull it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. And then these last three statements. He says, for everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt hath lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace in one another. Now, I know that's a lot of Bible and I'm kind of starting slow, but this is where it gets. There is a vast difference between salvation and discipleship. Salvation, the Lord says of salvation, this is what he says, Whosoever will, let him come. Salvation is open to anyone. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. Salvation is for each and every one to come. And all that is required is faith. Salvation is simply walking to the cross and trusting in the Lord and asking him to forgive you and to be baptized in his name and be filled with the Spirit. Salvation is free. But discipleship, huh. discipleship is only for believers willing to pay a price. Discipleship is not just coming to the cross, but Jesus said you need to pick up your cross and you need to follow me. In the book of Luke chapter 14, we, we begin to get this statement. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke chapter 14. Because in Luke chapter 14, we get to see that. In verse 25, it says this, that there were a great multitudes that were following him. And he said, and he turned to them, and he said this. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't mean just, just kind of... That doesn't mean hate the way we think of hate. It doesn't mean that you have to abhor your brother or your mother or your dad. What it simply means is that you have to love them less than the love you have for God. In fact, I would tell you that you don't have to change your love for your family one bit. You just have to love God more. And so all of a sudden, God begins to tell us that there is this thing called discipleship that means so much to him. He says in verse 27, if it, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so, in order to understand this, you have three parables that Jesus begins to give you have the parable of, of the man that builds the tower, you have the parable of the king that prepares to fight a war, and the parable of the salt that loses its flavor. Verse 28 says, for which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost whether he have sufficient money to finish it unless happily you lay the foundation and not be able to finish it and everybody makes fun of you. We've heard that parable it would be pointless for us to say, hey, let's start building a church. Well, do you have enough money? No, we've got enough money to pour the foundation. All right, cool. Let's pour the foundation and then for five years, seven years, 20 years, that foundation sits in rock because we didn't count the cost. And then what, what about a king who says, I, I've got to go make war against another king doesn't first sit down and consult whether he has 10,000 to be able to meet the one that comes with 20,000. Sometimes the king has to be smart and say, you know what, I, I can't win this battle. I might have to send an ambassador with some peace treaties and, and try not to make this war happen because I don't have enough to win the battle. Now, I'm, I'm pretty confident, in fact, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that We use this, and it is a good proper interpretation that we use it to talk about that we need to make sure when we start living for God, we're ready to finish the course. I understand that. I preach that. Finish what you start. Finish what God has done in your life. Run that race that is set before you. Give everything you can. But I have begun to study it with a little bit deeper uh, understanding. And that is, I'm also convinced, and and I I got this from a a commentator by the name of Campbell Morgan. And I begin to study it. And and he begins to tell us, and we need to, to look at this. He says that he believes that that builder and that king is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ says, I've got a kingdom, I've got a church I want to build, and I've got to count the cost. Can those that I entrust with building my kingdom make it? Can I tell you today... That God has looked at you and I and he has counted the cost and he has decided that you and I have everything we need to work the kingdom of God and so that at the end of time a church can be presented to the bride and he can look and he say, I counted the cost and it was good. The reason I know that is because in those, those first two, the builder and the king, is followed by one other parable of the salt. And Jesus had already said in Matthew, You are the salt of the earth. Jesus looks. The salt is interesting. We don't think a lot about salt. I mean, some of us like a lot of salt on our food, but that's primarily the only thing we use salt for. Sometimes we'll go get the rock salt and throw it on the ice when we need it to melt. Some of you that live on well water, you put salt in your water softeners, but that's really the extent of what the salt is. But to be honest, the word salary is related to the Greek word that is salt. Because it was very common to be paid in salt. Salt was a valuable commodity in the times of of Jesus' times and beyond. And that's why you can say to, to someone, they're worth their salt or they're not worth their salt. It was because salt was such a valuable commodity that they could be used as a monetary payment. Salt did a couple things. Number one, salt was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators. They they didn't have all of the great things that we have. And one of the most common ways of preserving meat was to salt the meat. They would literally take meat and they would pack it in barrels of salt. And that salt would, would get in there and it would basically dry it out. It was hard to eat it just by itself. You'd have to put it in water and make a broth out of it. You'd have to really cook it. But it was a preservative. And, and and God looks at you and I, and he tells you and I, you are the salt of the earth. I've called you to help preserve this world. And while we may never be able to fix this world, in our spheres of influence, we are called to retard the growth of evil and decay. It ought to be that when you get around those that you work with and your family, there ought to be a change of their conversation. There ought to be a change of the way that they live because you and I ought to influence the world rather than the world influencing you. We ought to realize that greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. One of the greatest examples of this that I have ever seen in my life is my dad. Because I have watched my friends all of my life. My house was the house that everybody came to in the neighborhood. Mainly because my parents wouldn't let me go anywhere else. And so if I wanted friends, I had to come to my house. That's about what it kind of boiled down to. So there were always people at our house. As I grew up and, and now we're young teenagers and then teenagers, my friends grew up and they were typical teenagers. They cussed like sailors. They told dirty jokes. And I'll have to be honest, not always did I influence them. Sometimes they bled off on me. But I would watch them come to my house, and without my dad saying one word, they would change their their vernacular. Because dad was teaching me that we are the salt of the earth, and we can help slow that evil and that decay, and we can help preserve those around us. The other thing that salt is, it's a purifying agent. Salt is what they call an antiseptic. It it, it brings out uh, the the, the infection. That's why salt, when it gets on you, it stings. Much like many other medicines that your mom and dad put on you and they said it was going to help you and it hurt worse than the the wound that you had. But salt, when it gets on there and it stings, it, it, it touches the wound, but it begins to kill the infection. And so in our lives, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. We are called to purify those we come in contact with. Salt. It gives flavor to things. It, it, it causes there to be a thirst in those. And, and so as so many have preached and said, it ought to be the character, it ought to be the conduct of you and I as Christians that brings people to the place where they become thirsty for the things of God. They become The more someone hangs around you, the more it brings them to a place where they desire what only God can give. But in all of these, we have this other side of that. Yes, we're the salt of the earth, but in both Matthew and Mark and now here in Luke, we have this understanding that it says that salt is good. Verse 34 in the book of Luke, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out, and he that hath an ears, let him hear. I don't know about you, but I remember when Sister Buford and I, we first got married and um, we we, we had a little apartment and we go to the grocery store for the first time and we're going to fill up our pantry and I was so excited because now I get to decide what we're going to eat, not my mom. And so we start picking out all of the good stuff, the good peanut butter, not the cheap stuff, the good syrup, not the cheap stuff, there's some things you just don't skimp on. And we get it all, and it's kind of expensive because you've got to fill up a cupboard. And then we realize we don't have any salt, we don't have any pepper, we don't have any flour, we don't have any sugar, you know, all the stuff you take for granted. And so now you've got to buy all the spices. Now, someone who knows how to cook will know this, that spices do have a shelf date. Just because you got that tarragon that's been in your pantry for 19 years, it probably doesn't taste the way tarragon is supposed to taste, all right? And so it's pretty good that you, for a lot of your spices, you kind of, you know, after a year or so, just throw them away and go get new spices. But salt doesn't. You can have salt in your pantry for a hundred years, and it's never going to lose its flavor because the salt that you and I consume is 100% pure, and, it, and it's there. But so, so when the Lord says the salt will lose its savor, or the salt will lose its saltiness, that doesn't make sense to you and I because we are used to pure salt. But the salt that they had there in Palestine would have been completely different. And for them, once the saltiness was gone, there was no way to restore it. See, there were three ways that you could get salt in Palestine. The first way is there was some salt caverns, much like we get some of our salt today. They could go down into some of these caverns and there was literally this this rock-type salt that they could break off and they could use. The second thing they could do is they could go to the Dead Sea and they could make evaporation uh, holes and they could put salt water in these, these little troughs and they could let all the water evaporate and it would leave behind the salt. But the third one is they. there were some salt marshes. I don't know if any of you have ever been around a salt marsh there in Louisiana. We've got a lot of them, but you would find or anybody ever had a uh, uh, a saltwater aquarium? Any of you ever had a saltwater aquarium? I have. And, and uh, you'll notice if you have saltwater aquariums, you'll get the salt creep that kind of goes up the side. You go to a saltwater marsh... And that salt water is leaching up through the ground and it will find, you'll find that on all of the trees and the, and the, the grasses, they will have this salt residue. It will almost be like an incrustation of salt. And they would go and they would get that as well. That salt there in Palestine during those times was not very stable. In fact, there's a story that is told and, and you can go back in some of the antiquities and you can find that there was a merchant uh, that grabbed some salt out of, of one of those salt marshes and, and there he, he, he thought here's what I can do I can go get a lot of salt and I can store it and, and uh, he, was, he was called the merchant of Sidon. And he said, I can get all of the salt and I can store it in my house. And I can evade the salt tax that was going on during that time. And then I can sell it, kind of black market salt. I can sell it and I can make a killing. Well, the problem was he didn't think about this. And he took the salt and he, he piled it up in his house and he put it all on the ground and he piled it up. And after a few years went by, he went to get the salt, and the salt that had been on the ground, the the salt, some of the, the chemical natures that were in there, had leached out, and what he had left was no good. And as this story there in antiquity that you can find about that merchant of Sidon tells you, it says that he lost everything because the salt had lost its savor. One of the easiest ways I can tell you And I don't know if you've ever done this Or if it even makes any sense to you But if you've ever had a bag of rock salt Or salt that you throw out on the the ice when it melts If you go and you put it on the floor of your garage If you leave it in the bag on the garage Especially if it has a hole You'll find this crust that begins to kind of Pour out of that bag And that's the chemicals leaching out of that salt And if you leave it there long enough Nothing else will work but this salt that they had, Jesus says, I don't want you to lose your savor. Because if you lose your savor, not only is it good to eat, it's not even fit for the land, nor is it even fit for the dunghill. And this is where I want to I want to get to you for a moment. Because the Bible says we're the light of the world and we're the salt of the earth. I've got an, a, a thing, I, I I printed it off because I was the only way that I could get it. It, The the way it was a a research journal and I couldn't couldn't save it, so I had to kind of like take pictures of it and get it. But it's a a research journal in an archaeological magazine that I found that begins to talk about all of the ways that salt was used in Palestine. Yeah, we put it on our food. That makes sense. But there, they realized that the salt, because remember, it wasn't pure white table salt. This was a rock salt. This was minerals. They began to realize that they could take that salt and they could put it on their crops and their crops would grow better because they had realized that the minerals that were contained in that salt were also minerals that were needed in their fields. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go get that little white Morton salt and start throwing it in your garden because if you do, it's not going to work, all right? But there's a lot of the stuff that you have in your fertilizer that was there in the salt that naturally occurred in Palestine. And they've done some research and they begin to find it, which is why the Lord said, I, I want you, and, and let me tell it to you positive, it's, in verse 34 it's a negative statement. If you've lost your savor, it's not fit for the land, it's not fit for the dunghill. Men cast it out. But the positive thing is, salt that is good is used to help things grow. They could put it in their fertilizer. They could add it there. Uh, There's a study that was done on asparagus that, that you could put a little bit of salt on the asparagus fields and it would help those asparagus grow better because there was an understanding of the growth that could happen. But Jesus said, if the salt has lost its savor, it's not good for anything but men to cast it out and to be trodden underfoot. In in those Bible days, and and again, I'd have to. I, I've not been there, but if you've ever watched the old Ben Hur movie, you'll see it, the old one. How they would sit on the tops of their 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 houses, and 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 their the tops of their houses in those times became a place where it was a playground. It was a, a open air court. They would do a lot of stuff on the top of their houses. This is why in the Bible it says that that when when those four men they took away the tiles and they lowered the man uh, down before Jesus that was sick of the palsy. This wasn't like them just getting up here and ripping up some shingles. It was kind of normal to get on top of a house. But one thing they did with salt that was bad is much of their houses were built out of a clay or an adobe type construction. And the one thing that old nasty salt was good for was to throw it on top of the clay and it would pull out the moisture and it would make that clay harder than it ever was and, and so that was the only use for good soil, I mean for, for bad salt, was to throw it on top of the clay. You say, Pastor, why are you taking all of this time on a Sunday morning of all things, why not do it on a Wednesday night when you're going to teach? Why can do it like this? It's simply this. Salt that comes in contact with the earth loses its savor salt that comes in contact with the world loses the purpose that it was created to do and the Lord looks at you and I and he says you are the salt of the earth I have counted the cost I know what it's going to take to make a church I know what it's going to take to grow a church here and I have looked and I have said I'm willing to invest in you I'm willing to put my spirit in you I'm willing to give you power and I know that if you'll be salty, if you will, it will work. Parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, says, and he spoke these things in a parable, and he said, behold, the sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the birds came and ate the seeds up. Some fell by the stony places, did not have much earth, and They did spring up, but there was no deepness of the earth. And because they had no root, when the sun came up, they were scorched and they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and when the thorns sprung up, it choked it. But others fell on good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And so it is that Jesus tells them the words of that and he says, the seed is the word of God. And he that, that, that hears the word and doesn't understand it, it's like the birds that come and the wicked, way, the wicked one comes and catches away that which was sown in his heart and then there's no growth. The stony parts are those that receive the seed and they hear the word and they with joy receive the word but they have no root and they might endure for a while but tribulation or persecution comes and they leave it away. Some are those that hear it then receive the seed. It's the amongst the thorns and he, it's he that heareth the word but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and that man becomes unfruitful. But he that receiveth the seed of the good ground is he that heareth the word, understandeth the word, and beareth fruit. Listen to me very carefully. While we cannot minimize the reality of personal choice and free will, I can't make anybody receive the word. I can't make anybody do something they don't want to do. At the end of the day, it's going to boil down to, did you hear the word of God, did you receive the word of God, and did you act on the word of God? But I strongly believe that each of those categories of soil and the seed could have been benefited by someone that was willing to work the soil. Those rocky places, when, when, when my dad, the house that they still live in, back in 1991 we bought a, a home that had, had been built and somebody had backed out of the contract, so it was a brand new built home, uh, hadn't even got all the lights up yet. So when we bought this home, it was nothing but, you know, dirt and mud all around it. They told my dad, we can, you know, give me $5,000 and we'll plant a bunch of of, uh, sod. And dad said, no, that's okay, I'll buy $100 worth of seed and and we'll plant seed. But dad paid me, I was 11 years old, dad would pay me a dollar, a five-gallon bucket full of rocks that I picked up out of that yard. It was a half-acre yard. I learned real quickly, the bigger rocks I picked up, the more money I got. (laughs) filled up that bucket. But Dad was teaching me that you can grow things a lot better if you pick up the rocks. Somewhere in this world, there needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ that's willing to go into some stony places and start removing some rocks, moving some things around and say, I'm going to help you receive the Word. If you've got a field and you, you have a, a, a cattle, you know that it's a constant battle cut down the brambles and the blackberry bushes and the thorns that like to grow up in the middle of your hay fields. It takes work. Jesus said, I've called the people who are the light of the world and the salt of the earth and they have a purpose. The salt that you have is far more than just making somebody thirsty and want to come to God. The salt that you have literally prepares the ground like fertilizer prepares the ground. You're called to help those grow that come in contact with you, I want you to stand today. So I ask you today this simple question: If Jesus said we're the light of the world, then then He goes on to say, "What's the point of being the light of the world and then hiding it by putting a bucket over it?" That same incredulous statement is made of salt. What's the purpose of being salt? if you let the world leech it away from you and then you're good for nothing except making people hard i've met a lot of christians that their greatest accomplishment to the kingdom of god is that they turned everybody off that they ever came in contact with and when they would get in contact with that christian if you will it caused people to get a hardened heart and get a bitter mentality That's because they were salt that was good for nothing to be cast upon the clay and make it hard. But I think I'm looking at a group of people here at Fallon that you want to do what God intended the salt to do. To preserve. To help protect. To help season the lives of those around you. And to help grow the Word of God in the soil of people's hearts all around what are you going to do how far are you willing to go to let the light shine and to let your salt be savor because you are the salt of the earth I want us to close our eyes and I want you to take a moment and I want you to examine your life is your salt good I don't know any other way to say that and it's probably not the most proper way but has it lost its savor Now here in in the physical world, there's nothing we can do to regain that savor. But in the spiritual world, we can. For the Bible says He can restore unto us the joy of our salvation. So I want you to begin to examine as our praise team begins to sing. And I want you to begin to examine your life. And I want you to ask, do you have a life that you've hidden? Do you have salt that has lost its savor? If you have, then I think it's time for you to say, Lord, would you restore me? Would you stir up the gift that's within me? Would you move in my heart, I pray, in Jesus' name.